welcome to episode 54 of Mosin at Large, Audio Geeks Rejoice. This is all for you. We're going to be taking a look at podcast hosting services, some of the pros and cons depending on how many listeners you have and what your publishing schedule is. And we'll speak with Matt Baster. He's the founder of Pinecast. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. It's hard for me to believe this, but later this year, I will reach my 16-year anniversary of podcasting. I love the democratizing nature of podcasts. For most of the 20th century, of course, we broadcast via the airwaves, which was a scarce resource. And traditional radio broadcasting is about serving geographical communities of interest, although major conglomerates work around this limitation through networking. Internet streaming came along and broke that model, so that anyone with a little bit of bandwidth and some simple equipment could acquire a global audience with a program coming from a bedroom. Even when podcasting started in 2004, which was when I got into it, the learning curve was fairly steep. Now anyone can create a podcast, free if they like, using just their smartphone. According to Forbes, there are now over 800,000 active podcasts, with over 55 million episodes. If you're thinking about setting up a podcast, you're going to have to choose somewhere to host it. Now, if you already have a blog, like a site that's either self-hosted or on wordpress.com, something like that, you may wonder, why can't you just chuck your episodes up on that site? That is not a good idea, because typical web hosts aren't set up to withstand a lot of people downloading large media files. Let's say you record a podcast and it lasts an hour and you encode it at 128kbps mp3. That file's going to take around about 60 megabytes of storage. 
Now, if you get thousands of listeners every week, like Mosin at Large does, that is a lot of bandwidth, and your web host is probably going to put you on the naughty list if you try and get people to download files from there. Bandwidth may be rationed, which means downloads for your listeners may be slow. Also, a good podcast host is going to give you detailed statistics, such as where your listeners are and what they're listening with. It's also important to remember that putting up some audio on a website doesn't automatically make it a podcast. If you just upload an MP3 file somewhere, you don't have a podcast, you have an MP3 file on a website. A genuine podcast feed consists of two elements, one that you'll need to know a lot about, and another that you may not need to know a thing about if you use a professional podcast hosting service. The file that you need to know a lot about is your media file. It can either be an audio file or a video file, but I'm going to focus on audio files in this discussion. And there's a second file, which, while it's the unsung hero of podcasting, is just as important. That's the podcast feed, which is in RSS format. Now, you may be familiar with RSS in another context. If you use a feed reader like Lyri or Feedler on your iDevice, so you can group all your news sources into one convenient app, then yes, this is the same thing, but using a feature of RSS called an enclosure, so that a media file can be attached to each entry in the RSS feed. A podcast RSS feed must be structured according to very specific specifications. A podcast host will take care of that for you, so you don't have to worry about it. So if you want to be a podcaster, you'll need a podcast host. Recently, we changed podcast hosts for Mosin at Large. And before we did that, I did a lot of in-depth study to decide who I would go with. First, let me talk about who I moved from. I've been a customer of Libsyn on and off since Libsyn started in 2004. And you really can't go wrong with Libsyn. You know that saying about no one ever got fired for buying IBM, Libsyn's quite similar, really. Libsyn, which is short for Liberated Syndication, is a respected player in the podcast space. Many big-name podcasters host with Libsyn, and they have a well-earned reputation for promoting and protecting the independence and openness of podcasters and podcast standards. Because they're such a major trusted player, Libsyn often gets early partnerships before other hosts do. For example, when Spotify began rolling out podcast integration, Spotify partnered with Libsyn very early on so creators with Libsyn could list their podcasts on Spotify. Once you've added your podcast feed to Apple Podcasts, which is the single most important distribution step you must take when you're setting up a new podcast, a Libsyn concept called Destinations allows you to ensure that you're listed on many other podcast directories right from the Libsyn dashboard. It's convenient to be able to log in to one place and grow your podcast's reach. For the most part, Libsyn is accessible and their support is responsive, although I did have one or two issues over the years that were never fully resolved, and I was left with the impression that commitment to accessibility was not the highest of priorities. Well, from time to time, curious person that I am, I always like to check out whether I'm using the best current solution in any given area, and my podcast host is no exception. I was motivated to see what other options were out there, 
because Libsyn's pricing structure was beginning to hurt me a little bit in the wallet. Now, the way that Libsyn works is that it charges you only for the storage that your podcast episodes consume in a month. Once the first of the month rolls around again, your podcast episodes for the previous month are archived and you get a fresh allocation for the new month. You can get started with Libsyn for just five US dollars a month. For this, you'll get 50 megabytes of storage every month. If you upload a podcast at 96 kbps stereo mp3, that'll give you enough for an hour-long episode per month with a little bit to spare. If you upload in mono, you can make it last doubly long, although I certainly wouldn't want you to hear our lovely jam jingles in mono, so that's why I always encode in stereo. But if you don't have any stereo elements that you want your listeners to get, then going mono makes a lot of sense. It's a smaller file for your listeners to download or stream, and they'll thank you for that if they're on metered mobile data. Going up to $15 per month, you get 250 megabytes of storage, but only basic statistics. The sweet spot for many people with Libsyn is their $20 plan, which gives you 400 megabytes per month of storage and advanced statistics. That's the plan I had with Libsyn, and it used to serve me well enough, particularly when I was doing the blind side. I really appreciate that Libsyn doesn't punish you for your popularity. Some podcast hosts I looked at, and you'll hear about this as we go through some of the ones that I examined, will charge you more if more people download your show. And with a show as popular as this one has become, and thank you so much for that, I really do appreciate it, that was really going to sting me in the wallet. However, with Mosin at large, I was regularly exceeding my 400 megabyte limit with Libsyn, even after lowering the bitrate of my files from 128 to 96 kbps stereo. And as I say, I do want you to hear those jam jingles in stereo. So I was regularly having to buy extra storage with Libsyn or make a decision not to make content available that I thought was worth including, and that's a shame. So I decided to see if there was anything better that suited my needs. My priorities may be different from most, first because of the length of the Mosin at Large shows. This is a long podcast, but also because I am hosting a well-established podcast, which, while it doesn't get hundreds of thousands of downloads like some do, is in the top 3% of podcasts in terms of listener numbers, which I find quite astounding. Over the last seven months or so, I've been a voracious reader of and contributed to the podcasting subreddit, and that's helped me to narrow down my choices. I ruled out the completely free services like Anchor. Now, I'm not saying that they aren't a great choice for some, but I do have concerns about how easy it might be to take your content to another host with Anchor and with the responsiveness of technical support. When something's completely free, there is usually a catch. With Spotify now having purchased Anchor, they're using it as a loss leader and as a disruptor to try and gain a foothold in the podcast industry. I passionately believe that podcasts should remain open and cross-platform. If you choose, say, Castro as your podcast client of choice, I believe you should be able to hear all your podcasts in the one app not have to go to Spotify or Luminary for exclusive content. I totally understand 
that professionals who want to make a living from podcasting need to monetize their podcast somehow. But there are ways to do that that don't involve exclusivity on particular platforms. For this reason, I don't want to encourage Anchor or Spotify. But if you're willing to get around the accessibility quirks, Anchor has the tools many people need right from their smartphone app, including recording interviews with guests. There are other free options which, in my view, are safer and better adhere to the open ethics and ethos of podcasting. You may wish to take your podcast to another host one day, so before you sign up with any new podcast host, you should investigate whether a podcast host adheres to a set of standards that facilitate this. Specifically, a podcast host should, without question, give you the option to add a 301 redirect to your RSS feed. This is how I was able to move so seamlessly from Libsyn to the new host I chose without really inconveniencing many listeners at all. When a podcast client or directory checks a podcast feed to see if there are new episodes and it finds a 301 redirect in the RSS feed, it's kind of a bit like finding that a change of address form has been submitted with the post office to redirect all your mail from where you used to live to where you live now. Any good podcast client, and for that matter, podcast directory as well, such as Apple Podcasts, will note that change and redirect all traffic for that podcast in future. It requires the podcast app to respect the protocol, but all good ones do, and if yours does not, it's frankly time to get a better podcast client so you don't miss out on future episodes when one of your favorite podcasts relocates. So let's do some mini reviews of a few podcast hosts. If you run your own podcast and would like to share your experiences with different hosts, do feel free. You'd be very welcome. First, Podbean. This one definitely gets a very honorable mention. When I started the Blindside podcast, I hosted it on SoundCloud, but support was difficult to obtain. Some of the more advanced features weren't available And at one point, SoundCloud's future was looking pretty precarious. In fact, I believe it may not even be profitable today. The trick is to get your files off a sinking ship, if you'll excuse the mixed metaphors, before the ship sinks and you can't get your files anymore. Although I should also say that I store everything I produce on our Synology network-attached storage drive, so I have a local copy just in case. So I moved the Blindside podcast to Podbean for a while, and it is very good. They offer a five-hour plan free, which gives you 100 gigabytes of downloads per month. Having talked to Podbean about this, my understanding is this is not five hours per month. This is five total hours. So if you reach your five hours and you want to upload more content, you will have to delete older content so you only have a maximum of five hours up there at any one time. It's a clever plan because it restricts you in both directions. It's an incentive not to make your shows too long, and there's a data cap. If you're just getting started with podcasting and your episodes are 30 to 50 megabytes each, the bandwidth limit will be just fine. If you can pay annually, Podbean's unlimited plan for audio podcasts is an extremely attractive deal. $14 if you pay monthly, just $9.95 if you pay yearly. For that, you get peace of mind and no complicated gotchas. Unlimited time, 
unlimited bandwidth, but only one show. Podbean refers to each show as a channel, and you only get one channel with this unlimited account. So if you would like to run several shows at once, you'll need a much more expensive business account. Podbean also offers advanced statistics on their unlimited plan. Your podcast gets included in their Podbean app, which last I looked was sort of okay from an accessibility point of view. You can record with this app, and there's also a Podbean soup drinker skill. When I last looked at their dashboard, accessibility was quite good, but not perfect. And when I used it, which was some time ago now, I did encounter some language barriers with the technical support. And it was one of those places that felt like they were working from a script whenever you contacted them. The price is right, though, and the service has proven that it's a serious player in the industry. It's robust and reliable. And recently, they've added a live streaming option. This would allow you to do what we do here on Mosin at Large, for example, and stream a live version of the show. Several respected blindness podcasts use Podbean, and I'd recommend it overall if you want to host one show without any worries about time or bandwidth. Next, having seen some excellent support material on their website and YouTube and come across various help articles when I've been Googling about things, I checked out Buzzsprout. Now, appropriately enough, there has been quite a bit of buzz about Buzzsprout of late, justifiably so, as they've been adding new features. I didn't get as far as trying it, so I can't comment on accessibility, but they boast a lot of cool features. Magic Mastering is based on Orphonic, which is a key tool in getting this podcast to sound the way that it does. For an additional fee, which varies depending on the plan that you're on, once you've uploaded your episode to Buzzsprout, Magic Mastering will apply leveling, equalization, and noise reduction. It's convenient, but I think using Orphonic before you upload to Buzzsprout would work out cheaper, particularly since the cloud-based version of Orphonic gives you two free hours every month, and of course you can pay a one-off fee and use the desktop apps indefinitely. There's transcription integration as well with Buzzsprout, but keep in mind that all these additional features start to really add up. If you're just getting started with podcasting, and you're not sure if you want to commit any dosh to it, Buzzsprout does offer a free plan, and you're not required to hand over any credit card information to use it. You only get two hours per month on that free plan, and your episodes are deleted after 90 days. They're serious about customer retention as well, so if you stick around on a paid plan for six months, they will send you a $20 Amazon gift certificate. So how much are those paid plans, and what do you get? Well, for $12 per month with Buzzsprout, you get three hours of storage every month. You can buy more time for $4 per hour. This is, of course, US pricing. $18 gets you six hours per month, with every additional hour costing $3. And $24 per month scores you 12 hours with additional time at $2 per hour. For Mosin at large, this is the minimum plan that I would have required but it pays to read the fine print and the experience of others. In the fine print, you will find that all plans are limited to 250 gigabytes per month, so don't get too successful. And the big one, no matter what you send to Buzzsprout, with a couple of exceptions relating to Magic Mastering, they will re-encode your audio to 96 kbps mono. Ah, uh, no. 
No thanks. No podcast host of mine is going to mess with my audio file. Bye-bye, Buzzsprout. For my needs, it would have been a downgrade from Libsyn. So who's next in our audition for podcast host idol? Well, we'll take a look at Captivate. I really like the vibe of Captivate's website. They convey knowledge of podcasting, and apparently its founders have had past experience in the industry. For a flat fee of $19 per month, you can start as many shows as you like, and you can add as many team members as you like. A very sweet deal. There is a catch, though. The total listens per month of all those podcasts can't exceed 12000 per month. Now, apparently, 97% of podcasts don't get this high. So all I can say is <laughs> thank you, because Mosin at large gets much higher than that. That means we'd have to go up to the Captivate $49 plan, and that is far more expensive than Libsyn. If you're not approaching the 12,000 download limit per month, Captivate is definitely worth a look. They look like they know what they're doing. Transistor is next on my list. That's a cool name for a podcast host. It's another relatively new podcast host that's making some noise. It offers a similar feature set to Captivate. It's got unlimited shows, and their price point is $19 per month. However, their plan was even less suitable for my needs because downloads are capped at 10000 per month. So I would have needed a higher-priced plan, and that would have been more expensive again than Libsyn. Simplecast is very similar, with a $15 per month plan offering unlimited shows and 20,000 downloads per month. Sad to say, still not quite enough for Mosin at large, but they are a respected player. There are lots of respected podcasters on Simplecast, and they have proven themselves to be a safe pair of hands. Now we get to my runner-up. In my search for a new podcast host, it was a fairly close-run thing. It suited my particular use case because I operate my own WordPress site, and you may have visited mosin.org over the years, and I'm also a proficient WordPress user. So wouldn't it be cool if you could host your files and RSS feed on a dedicated podcast host, which is optimized for media storage like that, while managing the whole experience from your WordPress dashboard that you already know and love, and you may be spending quite a bit of time there anyway. So this is the big strength of Castos. You can host your content with Castos if you don't use WordPress, and you may wish to do that because their prices and feature set are very attractive. But they also own the seriously simple podcasting WordPress plugin. The pricing model couldn't be simpler. Unlimited storage and bandwidth and shows all for just $19 per month. That is a fantastic deal. No surprises, no catches. Pay your $19 and you can start as many shows as you like without being punished for being successful. And if you pay for a year up front, you'll get two months free, which lowers the cost even further. For additional charges, you can get automatic transcription for your podcast at competitive rates. They use the Rev API, which is well respected, and they even have a podcast editing service if you're willing to pay for it, although I'm too much of a control freak to have someone else edit my podcast, not to mention that it's not cheap. Once you have it all set up, you just post to your WordPress blog, you assign a category for podcast episodes, and Castos does the rest. 
I set up a demo account and there were one or two unlabeled buttons, but I don't think there was anything that I would consider a showstopper. But I didn't choose any of these hosts because since I started frequenting the podcasting subreddit, one host that I had never heard of before doing that kept coming up. One thing I've come to appreciate is that when a small provider of anything gets really passionate, devoted followers, it's usually worth checking out. Castro, the podcast client that we've talked about repeatedly on this show, is a case in point. Before I started using it, I didn't know many people who did. But those who did talked it up in a way that was really unusual for, well, after all, just a podcast client. So when I checked it out for myself to see what all the fuss was about, I became just as passionate. I've also found that there are advantages as a blind person with accessibility requirements in going with smaller companies who have one or maybe two developers. The station playlist suite, which many blind internet broadcasters now use, is an example of this. I began using that software as soon as it was developed and began working with its developer on accessibility right from the start. Since it was so easy to get to the developer and have email exchanges, we've been able to do amazing things over the 20 years that I've been using it. So I kept hearing about this podcast hosting service called Pinecast. When I started reviewing my podcast hosting, I was keen to find out what all the fuss was about. Like many of the newer hosts, Pinecast also offers a free plan, and it's generous. You can host up to two separate shows. Each episode for those shows must be 48 megabytes or less. If you encode even a 96k stereo, that's enough to give you an hour per episode. And only your last 10 episodes remain in the feed on the free plan. For many people, that'll be enough to satisfy their requirements without paying a cent. Every episode you publish will tell the world that you're hosting on Pinecast, which I think is fair enough for a free plan. For $10 per month, you can access Pinecast's starter plan, although it will suit many experienced podcasters too. For this, you can host an unlimited number of shows and episodes. There are no storage limits and no bandwidth limits. Each show you create can have its own website and it's accessible to customize those websites. The player is also accessible for listeners. That's important because some people do prefer to go to a website and play an episode, particularly if they're searching for archival material. If you want, you can buy your own domain for your show and assign it to your Pinecast website. The $10 plan includes basic statistics, but depending on how deep you want to dive into your stats, that may be all that you need. If you're looking to monetize your podcast, Pinecast offers a no-commission tip jar, and you can publish private episodes that only sponsors can access. There is one limitation that won't affect most people, but it is something that I needed to crunch the numbers on and be mindful of when I was thinking about making the switch. While you can upload as many episodes as you like, the episodes have to be 80 megabytes or less. That's a long episode, and even most of ours come in at just under 80 megabytes. Now, if your episodes are longer than that, you have an 80 megabyte surge pool, which refreshes every month. 
So let's say that I produce a 90 megabyte episode. In that case, because I've gone over my limits by 10 megabytes, that 10 megabytes is taken from my monthly surge pool, giving me 70 megabytes of surge left for the month. I can continue to upload as many episodes as I like, but if I go over the limit again with another 90 megabyte episode, another 10 megabytes will be removed from my surge pool. Yes, I wish that limitation didn't exist, but I can definitely live with it, and any choice like this is going to be a series of trade-offs. I could, for example, go with Podbean, and I wouldn't have to worry about that 80 megabyte limitation on my episodes, but I also wouldn't be able to create more than one show. With Pinecast, I have the option to create as many shows as I want, and that has come in handy. One of the reasons people rave about Pinecast is because of the support, which is quick, thorough, polite, and makes me feel like my business is important. To save money with my Libsyn feed, I kept all my episodes in one feed in chronological order. So what you had was the recent episodes of Mosin at Large at the top, and then if you went back far enough, you got the In the Arena series, which is the autobiographical interviews that Glenn Gordon did about my life, And then, past that, you get to the Blindside podcast, which I stopped producing in 2018. So I contacted Matt from Pinecast to ask him if there was any way that I could separate these three distinct podcasts now that I was with a host that allowed me to create unlimited shows when I did the import from Libsyn. And he told me exactly how it could be done. And with some help from Ira to speed the process way up, It was a snap. Importing from Libsyn was lightning fast, given the amount of content being transferred. It only took a couple of minutes. So now you can subscribe to The Blind Side in your podcast app of choice if you want to access the old episodes there, as well as in the arena, which is now separately available on Apple Podcasts and other directories. The Mosin at Large feed now just contains Mosin at Large. Brilliant. You can also buy add-ons with Pinecast to create the mix of features that suit your needs. Another $10 will give you advanced stats, which include things like the countries and cities people are listening from. And this is another opportunity for me to give a testimonial about Pinecast's legendary support. I purchased this module and was a little bit perplexed because it didn't really seem to do anything. So I asked my daughter Heidi, who you've heard on this podcast several times, what was going on, and we took a look at it visually. It turns out that there was a button that, when you pressed it, brought up a menu way down the bottom of the screen, and that menu was very difficult to navigate with a screen reader. First, with certain screen readers, when you pressed the button, the menu didn't even pop up at all. Second, if it did actually pop up, it was quite difficult to activate an option from that menu. So I wrote to Matt at Pinecast and explained the situation. Extraordinarily, within 24 hours of me first reporting this issue as an accessibility matter that might be addressed next time he did an update, he had completely fixed it. Now, there is a bit of graphical data when you view your statistics, but you can navigate past that and get to all the information. I am just so impressed that within such a short time, a pretty significant fix was made to a control that rendered it difficult to fully accessible. 
That is service I can get really enthusiastic about. The $10 Crew add-on lets you add collaborators to specific shows, which is great if you want to get into running a podcast network. You can even receive notifications using a variety of methods, including email and Slack, pertaining to feedback on your podcast and other milestones. A growth add-on, another $10 a month, provides additional tools for monetizing your podcast. And finally, there is a $15 Hi-Fi add-on that replaces the 80 megabytes episode limit with the 80 megabyte surge with a 250 megabyte episode limit and a 250 megabyte surge. That is pretty humongous. Pinecast is very accessible and you can write your show notes in Markdown. This means that using Ulysses or the Writage plugin that I described in episode 48 of Mosin at Large, I can write great looking show notes and copy and paste them right into the editor on Pinecast. There are a few features I miss having made the jump from Libsyn. At the moment, Pinecast doesn't offer the ability to post an episode to social media once it's published. But it isn't too much hassle to open Twitter or Facebook in a new tab and do that yourself. Pinecast, unlike Libsyn, also won't publish your episode to Facebook or YouTube, but there are third-party tools that will do that. Given what I'm now paying and the freedom I have to publish the way I want, plus the outstanding technical support, I am thrilled with Pinecast. If you want to give it a try for yourself and support Mosin at Large at the same time, you can use my referral code when you sign up. When you use that referral code, you get 40% off your first four months with Pinecast. Yay for you. And if you stick around, I get two months free podcast hosting. Yay for me. So I'm going to give you my referral code and I will also put this in the show notes because it may be easy to copy and paste. But if you want to write it down, my referral code is R dash, that's R dash for referral, D-A-C-7-D-A. That's R for Romeo dash Delta Alpha Charlie 7 Delta Alpha. You can take Pinecast for a spin. I think you will really enjoy it. You can find it at pinecast.com and I will put links to these podcast hosts in the show notes. And having discussed the various options and the one that I have chosen, Matt Baster joins me from Pinecast. Hi, Matt. Good to have you here on Mosin at Large. Hi, it's great to be here. This is a crowded space, mate. What got you into setting up a podcast host when there are so many other options out there? Yeah, well, first I'll say when I started Pinecast, it wasn't nearly as crowded, probably like 30% of of what it is now. Um, I started back in 2014. The host that uh, my buddy was using for a show that I was uh, co-hosting went out of business. And looking around at the options, uh, the limitations and cost of the hosts that were available were just terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I, you know, I'm a, a software engineer by trade. And I thought, you know, I can do better than this, you know, just for myself. So I put some stuff together and we threw our show up on it and it worked. <laughs> and a few months later, you know, we'd made improvements and I'd gotten feedback from uh, my buddy and I kept adding things. And I said, you know, I can throw a sign up form on this. Um, and, you know, I can integrate with Stripe and start accepting payments. And next thing you knew, it turned into a, like a real business. Um, and today, 
been going at this for five years now, and it's really taken off. <laughs> is it your full-time job right now, or is it kind of a side gig for you? This is a side gig for me, yeah. I have a full-time job working at Stripe. Right. Well, so I guess that's convenient in terms of getting the payment <laughs> set up and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, actually, interestingly, um, when I started it, uh, I wasn't working at Stripe. I was working at a different company. Um, I changed jobs twice, in fact, during the process of building Pinecast. Uh, when I interviewed at Stripe, it was funny because they uh, were asking all sorts of questions. Oh, have you ever integrated with Stripe? And um, I was able to say, like, yes, not only that, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Pinecast was founded through Stripe's Atlas program, which um, actually registers a business entity, gets you set up with a bank account. And so I, I've been using Stripe and active with Stripe for forever, um, you know, this whole time. And they were super interested in the experiences that I've had and just the, the breadth of knowledge that I already had about uh, Stripe and its different products. And today, I mean, it's great because, um, you know, I can beta test my own features. <laughs> a lot of folks from other teams come to me asking for feedback about things that they're working on or ask if I want to try something. Our Corp Card team just got in touch with me and uh, I've started using Stripe Corp Card. The climate folks have reached out. Um, anytime you uh, make a charge to your card through Pinecast. 1.5% um, of that uh, is donated towards uh, carbon removal. Lots of interesting stuff. It's it's a great way for me to be able to sort of dog food what I do day to day, um, but also uh, bring value to my customers. You must be a busy guy because uh, not only <laughs> have I worked in podcasting for a long time, I've been doing this since 2004, but also in the past I have uh, been a program director on a radio station or two and run some voluntary internet radio projects. And the one thing that I have learned, if I've learned anything, it is that you can't get behind a mic and do a thing like a podcast or whatever if you don't have a little bit of an ego. And with that ego comes, uh, I guess, sometimes a bit of difficulty to work with. So the tech support demands on you must be quite immense with a project like this. You know, honestly, it's not as much as you would think. I took a really principled approach with this from the very beginning. My philosophy was I would respond to every single request that comes in. I anticipated a large support burden. And so what I did is every time I got a piece of feedback or a feature request or somebody had a problem, I would note it down or I would like immediately resolve the issue. Um, so bugs would get fixed very quickly. Um, rough edges in terms of the user experience would get addressed or documented. Um, and effectively, I've, I've treated this as me uh, sort of engineering my way out of the job. <laughs> so, you know, five years of effort going into this, taking all of the things that could go wrong or are going wrong and saying, okay, well, you know, users get this weird error message. Let's address the weird error message or address the cause or give a better explanation or point them towards documentation from the UI itself. So the support burden is actually quite low. I spend probably less than 30 minutes a day handling support. That's interesting. And one of the things that I noticed when I looked at the Reddit, the subreddit that has been set up specifically for Pinecast, which I think is a nice feature, somebody made the observation that really came to my mind, which is when you look at some of these surveys that list the top 10, top 20, top 30 podcast hosts, you don't often see Pinecast there. And I didn't know about Pinecast until I found the podcasters subreddit about seven months ago. Are you deliberately kind of keeping it a little bit of a best kept secret for people to discover so that it doesn't get unduly out of hand for you? Yes and no. That was definitely a concern early on. Um, I didn't want to push too hard uh, and not be ready, especially within the first year. It was a huge concern of mine that I would 
you know, get too many people onto this service and they wouldn't like it or they would find problems and I would just be overwhelmed. Now I don't really have that excuse. <laughs> Part of the reason why Pinecast doesn't appear is first and foremost, I spend zero dollars on marketing. I have gone through and spent a few hundred dollars here and there on Google AdWords, Facebook ads. Um, I think I did a Twitter campaign at one point and I've seen effectively zero return on investment um, for all of those ad campaigns. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I'm not a marketing guy, but the way I see it is if I'm not going to get a return on investment on marketing, like I'm doing fine without it. <laughs> so that's probably the first big thing. And then the second thing is a lot of the lists or reviews that you see aren't just people writing these out of the goodness of their heart. Um, I probably get two or three messages a month from folks saying, oh, I'm putting together a podcast resource guide. If you'd like Pinecast to be included, fill in this large elaborate spreadsheet, or you know, it'll only be $150 to be included, mm -hmm. or $30 a month. And it's like, it feels really skeezy to pay money to be listed in a comparison or to be listed favorably. One of the things I've noticed about Pinecast customers is there is a genuine enthusiasm, isn't there? I mean, people feel really good about being a customer. Yeah, that's one thing that I've always taken a lot of pride in. Um, you know, I, I've genuinely tried to make sure that everyone has a good experience. Uh, for probably the first two years, anytime someone would uh, cancel their subscription or write in asking for a feed redirect, I would ask them, you know, like, why didn't it work out? Uh, what happened? What went wrong? Um, and people would give very honest, candid answers. And uh, I, I've done my best to make sure that I address all of those. If there was some sort of misunderstanding or a lack of support for some sort of feature or something was missing that it got added. And so I, I do try and take a lot of care. And then I also do try to put a lot of effort into making sure that the, the little details about the service work well, um, making sure that you don't get in many cases, an error message that doesn't make sense, making sure that, you know, when I, tell you how many listens you have that it's pluralized correctly. There's so many like really fine, I, I hate to use the word details, but um, sort of refinements that go into building a complicated user interface and making sure that it's scalable for every type of customer, the, the beginner or uh, an amateur podcaster that has a few thousand listens or somebody that's doing 20,000 listens a week or a million listens a month, making sure that everybody sort of gets what they need through one UI that looks good, works well. You talked about candid questions and answers. So let me ask you this. If you get a life one day and you find, look, I just don't want this day job and this thing on the side as well. Is that the danger of going with a provider like Pinecast, which is essentially one person developing it, or you got run over by a bus tomorrow or whatever? What, what happens in a situation like that? Obviously, I, I don't want to get run over by a bus. No, I don't want you um, to get run over by a bus. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So as far as me leaving, I've always planned for this. You know, I have no plans to sell Pinecast or stop running Pinecast um, for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, it, w there will come a time when I don't want to do this anymore um, for any number of reasons. Um, it could just be I'm too busy. It could be that, you know, I'm starting a family, I'm moving, whatever. And I've always promised my customers that if that were the case, there would be some sort of grace period where there wouldn't be any cost to them, um, where the business would you know, effectively transition over. Um, I know a lot of other folks in the space um, as far as like executives at other podcast hosting companies, and I would definitely work to make sure that everybody's podcast found a home. Um, so that's definitely not something 
to worry about. I'm not just going to up and disappear. Other podcast hosts in some ways are, are, are like zombies. There's a handful who I won't mention that uh, just don't respond to customer support. You know, uh, the lights are on, but nobody's home. Uh, that's not what I want to become. Um, I, I would feel really ashamed if that was the legacy. There's always a risk with any podcast hosting company. Um, you know, even the largest ones like Libsyn, things can and do go wrong. Um, in the time that I've been running Pinecast, there are horror stories of people ending up losing all of their subscribers because they've made what seems like a trivial mistake, but ultimately it, it costs them their entire listenership. One really common error is folks will cancel their existing podcast hosting subscription when moving between hosts. And they don't realize that by doing that, they also remove the feed redirect. And so anybody that hasn't seen their feed redirect is trapped on their old host who has effectively deleted their podcast permanently. And so, <laughs> you know, it, there's always a risk. The issues that you might encounter through going with a smaller host are not nearly as, as large as some people might imagine. Accessibility is very good with Pinecast, and obviously for me and people who listen to this podcast, that is a, a huge factor. If it's not accessible, most of the people listening to this interview aren't going to be able to use it. Is that something that you were conscious of when you designed it, or are you just doing good practice and so accessibility kind of fell out? It's a little bit of both. Uh, my first proper full-time job was at Mozilla, and I was doing front-end work for them, and everything has to be accessible. Um, you know, Mozilla is designing for sort of the least common denominator. So everything has to be built with best practices in mind. Um, so you, you definitely get into the habit doing work like that of building things, quote unquote, the right way. But also it's perhaps some pedantry on my part to have a much deeper appreciation for doing things right the first time rather than rushing to build an MVP like other folks might do, and then having to revisit it later to fix issues or you know clean things up or make it accessible or make it localized or what have you. After Mozilla, I was at Box building enterprise software, which is this world of hurt when it comes to best practices. And a big part of my work there was driving the organization towards best practices, localizing things correctly, making things accessible. And now uh, in my current role at Stripe, building user interfaces that work for not just our customers, but our customers' customers. So this, this network effect of building things that are used by an exponentially increasing number of people. And if it's not accessible or if it's not localized properly or it's not regionalized properly, you've simply failed. And so our customers rely on us at Stripe um, to build the best possible user interface and we just can't cut corners. So a lot of those values have definitely carried over into Pinecast. In fact, uh, pretty early on, uh, I had a user reach out to me who, I, I don't believe he was fully blind, but he was legally blind, and he used a screen reader, I think, about half the time. And he had some questions and concerns, and I was able to go in and make some quick adjustments. Uh, and so definitely having that feedback early on did help. It's sort of a point of pride for me to be able to serve customers that you know maybe got lost in the mix uh, with other hosts. And honestly... A lot of the things necessary to make a, a user interface accessible, or not just accessible, but like friendly uh, to, to folks who either use a screen reader or rely on a keyboard instead of a mouse, or folks who are colorblind or have other sort of vision impairments, it's not that hard. Uh, and there's really not a whole lot of effort involved in it, especially if you're building things in a scalable way. 
sort of just like keeping your house clean. Like if you keep it in mind and you're actively maintaining it, uh, it's generally not that difficult. One of the things that I really had to look for very carefully was the right pricing model for me. With Libsyn, where I've come from, I was quite regularly hitting the 400 megabyte limit, which is the $20 plan there because of the length of our episodes. We're very verbose here. (laughs) And uh, then, of course, you look at other podcast hosts, and they're effectively penalizing you for being popular. And the more popular you are, the higher the price goes, essentially be punished for your success. So you have this model where really the only limitation is an 80 megabyte limit per episode with the surge pool. How did you come up with that model? And you're obviously confident in its sustainability. Yeah, it was actually originally 64 megabytes with no surge. Um, And then maybe six months in, folks were complaining that 64 megabytes was too low. And I agree. (laughs) It was was too low. Mm. Um, So I added the surge. um, And that uh, basically brought the number of feature requests, support requests down to zero for a, quite a long time. But a lot of folks were being put off by the 64 megabyte limit. And so I crunched the numbers. 80 megabytes seemed like a, a fair compromise. Uh, and so I bumped the limit up. It's interesting because I get, you can't make everyone happy. <laughs> a lot of folks look at that and say, this is great. I can get my show started. I don't need to worry about running out of space. I don't need to worry about how many people are listening. Um, At the same time, you end up with folks, some podcasts about podcasting, uh, who sort of penalize Pinecast and say, it's not a sustainable business model. The largest users are eating up the cost of the smaller users. Frankly, I think that's sort of the wrong mindset. Um, You know, any service uh, that has non-metered pricing does this, right? Like when you go and buy insurance for something, uh, you know, the folks who are most risky take up most of the revenue versus the folks that are not risky. The model itself, the limit on episode size rather than storage or bandwidth, uh, was very deliberate from the beginning. I was pricing it according to how I would want it to be priced for me. And it turns out that a lot of people feel the same way. My philosophy is you shouldn't have to pay more money because you got popular. And the underlying infrastructure of Pinecast is designed to scale in such a way that that becomes not just possible, but a very reasonable proposition. You know, behind the scenes, there's a number of different layers of caching and CDNs in place, making sure that the caching topology is correct so that we're not wasting bandwidth sending the same file to different parts of the world. You know, one of the things that we do is we actually move podcasts between CDNs to adjust for better pricing. Um, So it may be the case that a podcast is extremely popular. Um, There's one podcast that's based out of sort of Northern Europe that right now is sort of the most popular podcast on Pinecast. And it makes a lot of sense for us to shift their traffic over to a CDN where the bandwidth is much cheaper for that part of Europe um, than it is to keep them on our main CDN. Just some clever tricks and working with these constraints and invariants in place has allowed Pinecast to work around the notion of total bandwidth or uh, the amount of bandwidth uh, that somebody has allocated or should be using. Yeah, you've you've really thought those things through, and that's what impressed me. For example, when I did the import on quite a large number 
of episodes with a pretty decent size per episode. I was astounded by how quick that import process was. Also, with setting up a new episode of a podcast, I kept thinking I must be missing a step. Because, <laughs> um, you know, with my previous host, you would have to define your show title twice to do it properly, once for Apple Podcasts and once for everybody else. And you're just working the magic, you know, you're making it clear, keep the episode number out of the title field, we will handle that. And then it's all just transparent. So it's those little things that just make for a very elegant experience. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I've tried to refine a lot. The most common things that you interact with, are the, the things that I spend the most time fiddling with and uh, revising and, and playing with, um, especially around the season and episode numbers, um, it took me a few months to get that into production uh, when Apple first announced it. And again, like we got dinged <laughs> pretty hard by some of the, the pundits, but a big part of it was doing it right. And even once we launched it, it was only for shows that took advantage of the new serial episode format that Apple was making available. And it took almost a year uh, maybe a little bit longer to get it working for 100% of shows. The reason why is if we got it wrong, we were making everything objectively worse for every single user on Pinecast. You know, if it takes that extra five seconds to post an episode, you know, if you a hundred episodes in, you're talking about 500 seconds, you know, that you've wasted just fiddling with this meaningless UI <laughs> Versus me putting in the extra time and investment and saying like, okay, well, you've got this back catalog of 250 episodes. Are you really going to click into 250 episodes and then update every title to be correct? No, I'm going to give you a tool that's intelligent and can help you most of the way and then do the rest of it for you. Being very deliberate um, and, and super rigorous about thinking through not just what features we have, but how people will use them is really like a core part of how I think about feature development at Pinecast. And the fact that you're so approachable means that uh, obviously people can have some input. Just to make sure this is not an infomercial, there are two things that I miss. So I'll, while I have you there, I'll, I'll do my lobby. Happy to take your feedback. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one is that I process um, post-production all my podcasts through Orphonic, and Orphonic will allow you to upload via various methods such as FTP to a podcast host, um, which just cuts down the workflow some because you've got the file already up there and it just speeds it up. And I had that uh, whole workflow working pretty well. And similarly, the other thing as part of the publishing process is the publishing to social media, which I'm sure you must be getting a lot of feedback about, that I'd love the ability to automatically tweet my episode title and a link uh, and, and maybe post that to Facebook as well. Do you think those things might happen? Theophonic upload um, is something that we've gotten a lot of requests for. Publishing to social is surprisingly not a top feature request. Um, Interesting. Early, yeah, early on, um, there were a lot of folks that were asking about it. The biggest um, sort of like cross-service uh, posting request that uh, I see anyway, posting to SoundCloud and posting to YouTube. Yes. Which is sort of curious because like SoundCloud is like a different podcast host. <laughs> um, so I'm not really sure what folks are, are looking for there. Publishing on social is something I'm very interested in. It's sort of a tricky problem to do it well. Having just like a link to say, you know, click this button and then we'll pre-populate the, the tweet field or the Facebook post field. That's easy. I could do that in 20 minutes and, and have it live. I think the thing that 
is most striking, though, is something like 70% of episodes that are uploaded to Pinecast are scheduled for the future. So without having a way of, of delaying the post to the future, it's a little bit tricky. And then handling the error cases around that. That's really the biggest reason why publishing to social doesn't exist today on Pinecast is like getting that experience of making a post ready in the future right? It's not a, a, a super simple problem. Ophonic upload though, a lot of folks have requested that. There is something sort of related, uh, which is going to happen that I can't really talk about. Um, but it does sort of lay the groundwork for a, a feature, which I refer to as, as I say, lovingly, I don't love it. <laughs> um, a, a feature which I refer to as horizontal uploading. Um, so rather than uploading an episode directly through the, the uploader in the app, it's allowing you to upload the episode horizontally from a different service. A big request that folks have had is being able to import episodes from Dropbox or yes. import episodes from Google Drive. Very similar in nature to how a phonic works. There is another service that we're looking to partner with, um, and they would like us to support sort of this publish from their service feature. And that infrastructure that would be required lays the groundwork for horizontal uploading. So keep your eyes peeled. Uh, I would love to support Ophonic if they were to reach out and want to do a partnership. I would jump at that. Uh, definitely a great opportunity. And there are ways around some of these things. So the YouTube thing is another kind of minor thing for me. I, to be honest, we never got a lot of hits from YouTube, but it was there. And I guess it's just another place to be. And given the low cost of Pinecast, there are services you can go with like repurpose.io that are dedicated to doing things like YouTube, Facebook and SoundCloud for that matter. Yeah. yeah, And that's definitely been one of the big reasons why I haven't pushed too hard on the, the social publishing, um, you know, with something like Ift or Zapier, you can sort of roll your own pretty easily and get almost exactly what you're looking for. Um, there's so many automation tools these days. Uh, we integrate with Headliner, uh, which allows you to export um, a customized MP4 file that you can upload to YouTube. So there's, there's like alternatives that are probably better than what I could do in an early MVP. Yeah, it's interesting. YouTube... On its face, it sounds good. <laughs> mm. um, the tricky part about it, uh, and something that I've sort of gone back and forth about, is if folks are listening through YouTube, um, you're not going to get analytics for it, right? Like unless I'm integrating with YouTube and then somehow either scraping the dashboard or pulling from some API, I don't believe they make analytics information available through their API. You wouldn't know it unless you logged into YouTube and looked at the analytics there. Um, and that to me seems a little bit more burdensome than most people want. There's also this like weird question about like what truly is a podcast. If you can't subscribe to it through an app that gets you the show automatically, then it doesn't really feel like a podcast. And I realize you can subscribe to things on YouTube, but I don't know if I would listen to a podcast on YouTube the same way I'd listen to a podcast on Pocket Casts or... Mm you know, Spotify or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a veteran of this, I completely agree with you. And it's really concerning to me that we see the arrival of platforms like Luminary and now Spotify is scooping up proprietary mm -hmm. content. To me, that is not 
podcasting. And I think it's really important that those of us who value the open standards of podcasting actually defend the word and say, you know, you, you may be offering audio on demand or video on demand. That ain't podcasting. Yeah, it's this weird sort of semantic tomfoolery in a way. <laughs> um, I, I've been in debates on Twitter about this where folks say, well, I can listen to it on my phone and that's what matters. And, you know, if that's what you value, then I can't argue with the notion that you call it podcasting in the same way that my mom calls every video game ever made a Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a tricky problem. I disagree with the idea that you can have platform exclusive content. Yeah. Um, it feels bad. I also recognize the fact that there isn't a good way of monetizing podcasts. Patreon tried to do it with sort of private RSS feeds, but it's really hard to get right. And it's really hard to do it in a way that offers a good experience. You know, if you are a, a patron of a show that uses Patreon to monetize content, you actually can't listen to that show on Spotify because Spotify won't let you subscribe to individual RSS feeds. A show has to be available through their directory. And arguably, even though it's using RSS behind the scenes and, you know, it's a directory and you're listening to the podcast as they've been produced by the podcast producer, the idea that there is a show that lives on that directory that I then can't subscribe to through my app of choice, be it Pocket Cast or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or what have you, that feels really bad. And if we go in this direction, it suddenly means I need to have a Spotify subscription. I need to have a Luminary subscription, an Apple Music subscription. And, you know, at the end of the day, now you're paying $100, $150 to listen to the eight, nine podcasts that you care about. And are we really better off? Probably not. It paves the way for fragmentation in the same way that uh, the streaming video on demand services have become so fragmented and people are paying for Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus. Sure. It all adds up. And when you do have to pay those um, prices for that sort of service, are you also going to pay for podcasts? How much discretionary income is there? Yeah. And the the thing that's probably the most frustrating to me is that, you know, if you're paying, let's say, 10 bucks a month for Spotify, how much of that $10 is actually going towards the podcast? Probably only a few cents at the end of the day, right? Like if I'm listening to a Gimlet podcast on Spotify and it's Spotify exclusive, of that $10, maybe only four or five cents actually goes to the Gimlet folks for the production of that show. The other $9 and so, and, and, and however much, ends up going towards engineering, research and development, licensing, paying a bunch of lawyers, right? Like you're, you're paying a multi-billion dollar company for the thing that you would essentially only need to pay a few cents for. It's really um, unfortunate. And, and on we, top of that, it still has ads. <laughs> <laughs> and we haven't talked about the tip jar, which is a feature of Pinecast to help podcast creators in that regard. Yeah, that was something that I, I built pretty early on. A lot of people had been asking, how do I monetize my show? And the short answer is, you don't really monetize podcasts. Like as much as folks want to be the next Joe Rogan or Mark Marin or Gimlet Media, as much as folks you know want to be in that position to be able to make passive income off of their show, the odds that it's actually going to happen is extremely slim. I look at the top podcasts on Pinecast and the numbers that they command collectively add up to only a fraction of what the podcast in the iTunes top 100 actually make. 
And if you sit down and seriously consider the the dollars that you would get per episode, it's very, very slim. Early on, a lot of folks were asking about advertising, you know, can you facilitate ads? And the thing is, I could, but, you know, if you're comfortable receiving, you know, 30 cents per episode, (laughs) it's really not worth either of our time. The tip jar made a lot more sense because you're appealing to folks that already like your content. And you say, you enjoy this. How much are you willing to pay to listen to an hour of content four times a month? You know, if you're paying somebody minimum wage or what should be minimum wage, you know, $15 times four hours, you know, you're looking at 60 bucks a month. Now folks don't necessarily need to pay 60 bucks a month, but you know, six bucks a month is a great number. (laughs) And if you get, you know, let's say a hundred people paying you six bucks a month, that's enough to, you know, either meaningfully supplement your income or uh, you're able to grow your show, spend some money promoting your content or do something else. The top Pinecast tip jar users are sort of making money in that range. And it's been interesting to watch folks transition from just starting out and you know, posting their first episode to seeing more than $100 a month in passive income through the tip jar. So Pinecast is definitely worth checking out. I'm very glad I made the switch and I appreciate, as I mentioned in the review part of this, uh, the work that you did on the uh, accessibility of the different views of the stats, which has made a really big (laughs) difference. So I appreciate that. And people can head over to uh, pinecast.com and check it out. There is a free tier. I talked in the review about the pricing, but perhaps we can just talk briefly from your perspective about what it costs to work with Pinecast. And for those just getting started, you can try it. And actually, this is what I did. I set up a dummy podcast and just published an old episode to see how accessible it was. The uh, podcast wasn't listed anywhere, so it didn't go anywhere. It was just a way for me to use the free tier to assess how accessible it was and make a judgment that it was viable. So people can do all those things, but they can actually also, you know, if they're just getting into this, work with Pinecast for some time on the free tier, which is quite generous. Yeah, um, that was sort of a goal. You know, folks that just want to sort of kick the tires and see whether podcasting is for them. You're not doing an hour or super high quality audio. You can get in there, get started for free, try it out, see how it goes. And hopefully, you know, there's enough there that's compelling for you to want to upgrade. The only tier that we have besides the sort of demo tier is our $10 a month starter plan. I'm happy to give you a coupon for a free month. Um, There's referral codes that other folks have that offer you uh, 40% off for four months. Um, So definitely be on the lookout for those. And beyond that, one of the things that I've really strongly disagreed with is what you'd mentioned earlier, this idea of a hosting company having like a $5 tier and a $7 tier and a $12 tier and a $15 tier and a $20 tier. And then you have to sort of pick and choose based on the feature that you need the most that costs the least. (laughs) And I'd never wanted to do that. Um, When Pinecast launched, it was a $5 plan and a $50 plan. And I've since gotten rid of the $50 plan and all of those features are now offered a la carte as add-ons. And so you can add on more analytics features for $10 a month. You can add on features for growth and customizing your show and password protecting your podcast. Um, You can add on features for collaboration to invite other producers on so that you can enable access to other accounts and combine analytics together and get notifications. All sorts of really good stuff. 
uh, an increase. Uh, there's a, a an add-on to allow you to lift the 80 megabyte limit up to 256 megabytes. And there's more on the way. Uh, so uh, definitely check it out. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. I look forward to finding out what's coming next. And thank you for giving us some time, pinecast.com. And I will publish my referral link because I have an interest in promoting my referral link. Um, and uh, I hope people check it out. It's a great way to get into podcasting and uh, the support is fantastic. So thank you for your time. I appreciate that. Of course, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and especially on the uh, 30th anniversary of the ADA here yeah, in America. Yeah, we are actually recording that on the 26th. That's right. So it's a very yeah. timely um, time <laughs> to be recording. Yeah. Jonathan Mosen. Mosen at Large Podcast. Since we are finally getting around to talking podcasting, Oas Patel has a few questions. He says, What is the best Windows application? that allows you to edit long recordings and record as well. I'll answer each of these questions before moving on to the next one. You have to make a key decision when you're looking at what to record a podcast with on your computer. And that is, do I want to use a single track digital audio workstation or do I want to use a multi-track one? So let's talk a bit about what the difference is. I was going to give a long analogy about how a single track digital audio workstation is a bit like a simple cassette recorder, but then maybe a lot of our listeners who are younger might not understand that analogy now. <laughs> I, I guess I would describe a single track digital audio workstation as a bit like a word processor for sound in the sense that you can have one thing that you're recording and you can apply effects to it in the same way that you might embolden or italicize a document, you can move text around using cut, copy, and paste. You can also insert items of audio from other files, and you can delete pieces of audio. You can even, with a single-track digital audio workstation, paste bits of audio on top of each other. But this is using a technique which used to be called sound-on-sound. Sound. This will work fine for you if you're recording a basic podcast, one where you have an intro at the beginning and an end, and you can also insert little bits of audio. And maybe you're doing a monologue of some kind. Essentially, it's just you talking. There are several single track digital audio workstations that are compatible with screen readers for Windows. Audacity is free. Fiddly, in my opinion, but you can get used to anything and it's free. It's open source. And I don't use Audacity. I've never really used it for uh, any significant projects or anything. I've just had a play, but I believe accessibility is in reasonable shape on the Windows platform. A lot of people also enjoy using GoldWave in this single track digital audio workstation domain. GoldWave has a lot of tutorial material floating around there for the blind community. So there's heaps of support and the price is right. It is shareware. So you can download GoldWave and give it a try, and if you like it, then you can purchase it. Goldwave has been around for a long time, and the developer is very aware of and supportive of the blind community. There is also SoundForge, which is how I got started in the digital recording space a long time ago, and that was the first tutorial that I ever produced back in about 2000, and people are still using SoundForge. And Oase, since I know that you are a JAWS user, I should point out there are some very good scripts for SoundForge that are maintained and produced by Jim Snowbarger, who is a personality here on Mushroom FM. And you can go to snowmanradio.com to find out about the capabilities of those scripts. 
However, if you are interested in recording specifically spoken word material for podcasting, the single track digital audio workstation that in my view wins hands down is Studio Recorder from APH, the American Printing House for the Blind. Unfortunately, it is not cheap, but it is amazing. It has accessible level meters. It has really very good editing that's designed for spoken word. You can drop in. You can sort of essentially pick up from where you left off and drop in seamlessly. It's got a lot of great spoken word features. You can speed up the audio talking book style as you play back. You can also move by sentence and paragraph, which is something that you can configure. And that's basically detected by the pause between sentences. The theory being that narrators are going to pause a bit longer for a paragraph than they are for a sentence. So Studio Recorder was, I think, originally produced for narration work. And of course, because it's produced by APH and some talented blind people are involved in its production, it is fully accessible. And I actually did produce quite a lot of material using Studio Recorder, and I still use it. So sometimes email comes in during the week, and as that email comes in, I will read it and record that in Studio Recorder, because all it is is me reading into a microphone, and Studio Recorder with its functionality is wonderful for that. However, you have a lot more flexibility if you go with a multi-track digital audio workstation package. Let's talk about some of the benefits of doing that. Essentially, you can record many things at once onto separate tracks. If you record everything onto a single track, then once it's recorded, you can't adjust the balance or you can't decide, "Mm, I didn't like this particular thing. I'll record that bit again over the top of everything else, or maybe I'll just delete it entirely. In a podcast context, Why is that beneficial? Well, let's say, for example, that I have a piece of theme music that I use for my podcast at the beginning of the podcast. Using a multi-track editor, I can put that theme on one track and I can record myself talking on the other. When it comes to listening to the podcast and doing editing before it goes out, I may think, oh, that music's just a little bit too loud. I'd like to turn the music down a bit and I can just adjust the volume of the music. It couldn't be simpler. In the context of a podcast interview, multi-track is definitely the way to go. What I have found over the years is that when you ask a question of a guest that you might be interviewing on a podcast, they take the time to have a good inhalation of breath, or even if they're a little under the weather, a little bit of a cough while you're asking your question. If you have everything recorded in a digital audio workstation that is multi-track, you can just mute that track. You can delete that little bit of audio from the speaker when they're having their cough and you're asking your question. You can also do things like apply separate effects. So you can equalize someone's voice differently from the way your voice is equalized, perhaps because of the microphone that they're using. You can adjust everybody's volume separately afterwards. So essentially with a single track digital audio workstation, you have to get things very right as you record because you've got a lot less flexibility afterwards when you're editing. With a digital audio workstation that is multi-track, you have much more flexibility to do things after the fact and make all kinds of changes. In terms of what options to go for for a multi-track environment, Reaper to me is by far the best game in town. And it's actually really cheap. I believe Reaper is quite a bit cheaper than both SoundForge and Studio Recorder, 
which are single track products, for individual use. As a JAWS user with 3P, you'll need probably three things. You will need a thing called Osara, which is a true work of wonder. Wonder, I tell you, it talks to JAWS and NVDA because there's an API, an application programming interface in Reaper, and it makes Reaper tremendously accessible. Reaper is very cool and geeky, and you can assign all sorts of keyboard commands and create custom actions. On top of Osara, once you have that installed, which will really make Reaper almost appear like it was written for blind people, you should also get Jim Snowbarger's free Reaper scripts. These JAWS scripts give you the best possible functionality for Reaper as a blind person. They really add some great features of efficiency. The ability to work with JAWS and Reaper with a Braille display using Jim scripts is just a beautiful thing. And you can get a demo and try it out. It's kind of like a shareware thing. So you can have a play without any obligation. Get Reaper, get Osira and Jim's JAWS scripts. There is a fourth thing, actually, and that is the SWS extensions, which gives you additional functionality within Reaper. In terms of places to go, there is a very helpful blind community around Reaper. A lot of audio professionals and hobbyists who are blind are now using Reaper for the jolly good reason that it is just rocking. So there is an email list that you can subscribe to called Reapers Without Peepers. And there's also a website for Reaper accessibility. It's reaperaccessibility.com. That's R-E-A-P-E-R accessibility.com. You can check that out and you will find some stuff about how to get started, setting up your first recording with Reaper and getting it done. Reaper's got a bit of a learning curve. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It's a steepish learning curve. But if you're just getting into this thing anyway, you may as well get into something that's going to stand you in good stead and grow with you for the foreseeable future. So I highly recommend Reaper. We produce Mosin at large in Reaper. And I guess I'm a bit late to the Reaper party. And I wish I hadn't been because it's just such a wonderful, efficient way to work. Oasis asks, which microphone and headset do I use to produce the podcast? I did answer that question last week, but it didn't go into the podcast for space reasons. So I'll just briefly recap. I have a uh, Allen and Heath Z22FX here. At the moment, I have a complete Audio 6 audio interface, but the audio interface is running a cable from the mixer to it. And my Heil PR40, we have two Heil PR40s connected to that mixer. The Heil PR40s are broadcast quality mics. They're kind of considered the gold standard by many in the arena of podcasting. They are dynamic, highly directional mics. And I think that this mic suits my voice, but it might not suit everybody's. And it's kind of like choosing an instrument. You know, I think you have to choose the microphone that works for you. If you're really going to do podcasting well, don't use a microphone headset. Get a decent microphone. You can get some very good quality microphones for not much. The Samson Q2U is a case in point. You can hear that mic in the demonstrations that I've done recently of TVs and that kind of thing. Uh, they are OK mics and they have the benefit of plugging directly into a USB port. And so if you're just getting started and budget may be a concern, getting a good mic like that that plugs into the USB port will give you more than adequate quality audio and not break the bank. I would recommend avoiding condenser mics because they tend to give you a lot more room ambience and 
You really need to be in a treated room to make the most of those. So I would stick with a good quality mic, the Samsung Q2U or the Audio-Technica ATR2100. Both do XLR, which means you can plug them into an audio interface or a mixer and USB. So they're great value. Lastly, he says, what are the steps to access the show notes for Mosin at Large? I can't answer this one, away because I don't know what you're listening with. All good podcast apps should allow you to review the show notes and click on any links in the show notes to go to particular websites. But not knowing what you're listening with, I cannot answer that question definitively. You can also go to the Mosin at Large website and the easiest way to get there is just to go to mosin.org and then choose the link for the podcast. And you'll find the link there that takes you to our Mosin at Large episode list on Pinecast. And you can review all of the show notes there very easily. Mosin at Large podcast. I recently learned through a podcast that I listened to about a new gadget that you might be interested in. So I'll share this with you. By way of background, you will know that for years I resisted getting a portable recorder. A lot of blind people who I respect with audio bought Zoom H6s a long time ago and similar recorders. And I held out and I was saying, bah, bah, I was saying, I don't want to pay for something where I have to write a cheat sheet and stuff like that. I'll do as much as I can on my iPhone. And the more I got into the recording of stuff in the field, the more I started to see the shortcomings and the more I could see the benefits of a multi-track recorder. So I briefly had the Zoom H6, which my son Richard now has, who is an audio engineering student. He's very grateful for the Zoom H6. And of course, I now have the Zoom F6. Absolutely delighted with the Zoom F6. As I have said, several times since acquiring it. Such a good gadget. It just, it's intuitive to me in a way that the H6 never was. That's a reflection on me, I think, more than anything else. However, if you are interested in getting the best possible recording you can from either an iPhone or an Android smartphone, then this gadget could be worth looking at. And I don't need this gadget. I keep telling myself, I don't need this gadget. I don't need this gadget. Let's see how long this lasts. This thing is called the iRig Pro Duo IO. And there's a slash between the I and the O. So the iRig Pro Duo I slash O. It is from IK Multimedia. You may have heard of iRig before. They've been around a while. They're an Italian company. It is a little audio interface. So some people call them sound cards because they've been around so long that they remember when they were things that you would put inside your computer. It's a little audio interface and it's designed to work with anything that you have. So if you have very basic needs and you just want to plug in one stereo source or two microphones, for example, you could use this with Windows, but primarily it's designed to work with mobile devices, both iOS and Android. So the workflow would kind of look like this. You would plug this into your smartphone and it comes with all kinds of cables. I'll talk about that in a bit. Then you would plug a set of headphones into the headphone jack in the Pro Duo. And you would plug in your sound sources, a couple of microphones or a single mic, or maybe some sort of stereo input source. 
Now, the reviews I have read of this device are raving, raving, I tell you, about the preamps on this thing. In other words, if you plug a microphone in, apparently there's enough gain for it to work with a wide range of dynamic mics without too much horrible hiss, horrible hiss, and it also offers phantom power. So you can use this with condenser microphones if you have those. If you are a musician, yes, it also supports MIDI. To connect to your computing device of choice, there's a mini DIN connector on the device, and it comes with a bunch of cables according to the specs. I'm just looking now, and you get a lightning to mini DIN connection cable. It is uh, 60 centimeters long, so that would connect you between your iPhone and this thing. It also has a USB-C to mini DIN connection cable in the box. That's another 60 centimeter one. So you could connect it to a laptop or an Android device with a USB-C port. If you've got an older device with USB-A, it will also come with a cable there that uh, connects a USB-A device to this audio interface. It comes with a couple of adapters as well, and this is battery powered, so batteries are included. It comes with two 1.5 volt AA batteries. There are input controls for each of these channels. If you're recording something stereo, that would mean that you'll have to be careful to turn them both up at once and in equal measure. But of course, where it really comes into its own is if you're recording interviews in the field and you have a couple of microphones plugged in and you can adjust them separately. You could use this with an iOS recorder, any number of iOS recorders that are out there that are accessible that record in stereo. What you would then get if you choose to record in stereo would be, say, one microphone on the left channel and one on the right. And then you could take that file and put it into a digital audio workstation like Reaper and assign each channel to its own track. And then you can apply separate leveling, equalization, anything you want to each of those tracks. So it really allows you to produce some very professional quality stuff on the iPhone. It will go to 24-bit, 48 kilohertz. So you're going to get some good stuff with this. But all that has to happen in post-production. There is no mono button on this device. That means that for one use case, it might not be ideal. And that would be if you were going to connect this, say, to Backpack Studio on your iPhone and then stream live somewhere and you have two participants and you're playing music. So it's a very specific use case. So if you're playing music, streaming live to a Shoutcast or an Icecast server, You want the music to be in stereo, but then when you talk, you're going to have one person panned hard left and the other person panned hard right if you've got two mics plugged into this thing. And there's nothing that you'll be able to do about that, unfortunately, because, as I say, no mono button. Still, it looks like a nice little gadget for recording good quality material in the field with anything, iOS, Android, your Windows laptop. Just put some batteries in and off you go. This is the iRig Pro Duo i O, and it's available all over the place in audio stores. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.